John Worley is a decorated Vietnam veteran, an ordained Christian minister, and a biblical counselor. He's married to his high school sweetheart and has four daughters and several grandchildren with her. Back in 2001, so we're going back quite a ways, but uh, he was 57 years old in 2001, and he was sitting at his desk reading his email when he came across a unique opportunity. Someone from Nigeria asked him to help this person transfer $45 million out of Nigeria, for which he would receive a significant cut and at the end of the transaction, would be wealthy. This person promised John Worley that he would be well rewarded for the complications and risks that he was taking to help get this money out of Nigeria. And he believed the person who sent him this email. The rest of the story is long and complicated, but let me just cut to the bottom of it, of the page. What John Worley fell for was what is sometimes called the Nigerian email scam. It's a way of saying, here, send me money now, and I'll give you a huge amount of money later to help me out of this situation. And to make things worse, Worley recruited other people to help him with this. And in the process, he committed a number of financial crimes. And so at the end of the story, Worley was convicted of financial crimes and sentenced to two years in prison as well as he was ordered to pay restitution amounting in almost $600,000. Now, how does this happen to somebody? How does someone who is respectable in the community, someone who is well-educated, someone who is a Christian and purports to live according to Christian morals and ethics and values, how does a person like that fall into a scam like this one, one that leads that person to commit crimes and actually um, victimize other people? And the answer is he was deceived. Someone came along to him and told him a story, a story that was false, and made a promise to him, a promise that was false. And using deceit led this man to do things, to, to take actions based on false premises that led him to a bad result. And this is obviously an extreme example, but it's an extreme example of something that happens to us in some way or another all the time in our lives. All of us can attest to the fact that deception leads to bad decisions. Every one of us has been deceived by others in our lives. And because we believed what they told us was true, we took actions and made decisions that ended up being bad, ended up being harmful to our lives and to the lives of other people. John Worley made many bad decisions because he was deceived. And many of the decisions, maybe all of the decisions that you and I make in life, we make because we're deceived in one way or another, either by someone else outside of us or from our own minds and hearts. Deception leads to bad decisions. Here in James chapter 1, we've been studying the book of James, and in the last message, we began studying what James talks tells us about temptation. And temptation, we said, is the solicitation to sin. That is, it is we are tempted when we receive an opportunity to make a decision or to do something that is outside of the will of God. 
That's what temptation is. It's a temptation to do something that's disobedient to God's word or God's will, something that is outside the will of God. Now, as we resume our study of James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, we're going to see that deception is a huge part of what happens to us in the moment and moments of temptation. That is, temptation is a process of deception that leads to a bad decision called sin. That's what we're going to see, especially in verses 14 through 15 of our passage for this morning. Let's look again at the scriptures as we begin to study this together. James chapter 1, verse 13 is where we began last time, and it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And so we spent most of the previous message talking about this, about how we as human beings tend to shift blame away from ourselves when we are led into temptation or even when we sin. That's what doesn't happen. We we don't... Uh, We aren't led into sin by God himself, even though we often try to shift the blame. Now, beginning in verse 14, James begins to tell us how temptation happens. What happens when we are tempted? And what he says is, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. This verse begins to unpack for us the process of deception, the process of temptation, and how deception leads us toward the bad decisions that we call sin. Now, in order to get back into this, I need to review with you an analogy that I used last time. And last time I talked about temptation as having two sides, an external side and an internal side, and I used the analogy of cherry pie. And I told you that I don't like cherry pie. And so if I'm on a diet and I go somewhere where cherry pie is offered to me, that is an external temptation to sin. Whoever offers me the, not to sin, but to break my diet, whoever offers me the cherry pie is making an offer, an external offer, and one that if I accepted it would take me off of my diet. But since I don't like cherry pie, there's nothing in me that corresponds to that invitation. So in other words, it's easy for me to refuse cherry pie all the time because I don't like cherry pie. There's no internal desire to match to that external opportunity. And so it is with sin. Sin happens not only because we live in a world that gives us external opportunities to break God's law and God's word, but it happens because we live in that and because we have an internal desire to sin. When those two match and we follow up on our desire to sin, that's when sin occurs. That's what James is going to show us in this passage. And so the first thing we see is that external temptations deceive you by offering pleasure outside of God's will. If temptation and sin are a process of deception, the deception begins when an opportunity comes along outside of you and says, here's a way to enjoy something. Here's a way to receive pleasure. It's outside of God's will, but it promises you a benefit, a result. That's what happened to John Worley. He was sitting at his desk, reading his email, minding his own business. He wasn't committing financial crimes on his own. 
But somebody came along with an external solicitation, with an external opportunity to do something that is wrong. And when James tells us in verse 14 that temptation happens when we are dragged away, he is using a hunting analogy. And he is describing how a hunter or a trapper will use bait to draw an animal out of safety into a position where it can be killed or trapped or whatever. And in fact, this word dragged away kind of has the connotation of sort of not against your will, but it's reluctantly. That is, a lot of times when um, someone is put in a position by an external temptation that leads them toward that sin, there's a sense of reluctance about it. And you know this from your own experience, that when you receive a solicitation to sin, part of you may be aroused, but part of you is saying, this is a bad idea. Your conscience is telling you, perhaps, that this is a bad idea. Or other people around you might be telling you that this is a bad idea. John Worley was told by his wife that she had serious concerns about what he was doing when he fell for the Nigerian email scam. And so he had a financial advisor who told him the same thing. And yet, because he needed money, he had declared bankruptcy a few years before. He was 57 years old. He was getting older and thinking about retirement. He had nothing saved. And so the opportunity without him dragged him out of his position of safety and put him in a position of vulnerability. This is what external temptations do to us. They tell us lies. They attempt to deceive us and tell us that disobedience to God's will is going to be better for us than obedience to God's will. They tell us that if we follow up on the opportunity to pad our resume with some untruth, that maybe we'll get that job that we don't have a chance to get. Or if we follow up on the opportunity of someone who wants to entice us into a situation sexually that is disobedient to God. Or that if we take the opportunity to embezzle a little cash from the company that will never be noticed, we'll have the benefit of the money. Or whatever it is. Any temptation we face in life has this external component. There's something out there in the world that promises us something that is false. And it's that false promise that puts us in a position where the second part of temptation can happen. And that's this. Your sin nature, the internal part of you, deceives you by responding with desire to that external temptation. So we have deception on two levels here. Somebody outside you tells you, hey, let's do this thing. It'll be fine. But they're lying. It's a deception. Inside of you, the enemy within, your own sin nature, which all of us have, is also trying to deceive you. It's telling you, even though your conscience may be warning you, it's telling you it's going to be fine. No one will know. We'll get away with it. It's just going to be this once. I have a good excuse or whatever. And we see this um, description of the internal part of temptation, again, in verse 14, where the scripture says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. There's the internal part. There's the sin nature and enticed. This word enticed comes from fishing. It's a fishing metaphor. And it describes how the hunger of the fish is aroused by bait that is left in this world. Again, if the fish didn't, wasn't attracted to the bait, they would never get caught. They would never take the bait and get into to a situation where they are caught and reeled in by the fishermen. And so it is with you and me. Yes, we live in a fallen world, and that fallen world is constantly dangling hooks 
opportunities to sin in this world. But if you and I didn't crave sin, if we weren't sinners in our very heart and in our very minds, if we hadn't toyed in our thinking with sin, those hooks never would bother us. We'd be able to swim right on by in this life without ever being enticed to sin. What we need to understand is that temptation does happen outside of us. But when you sin and when I sin, it's because inside of us, we're lying to ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves. Our sin nature within us is telling us a story that's false. And that story that's false is, it'll be better for me to take this opportunity to commit this sin than it will be to say no to this sin and do what's right in the moment. Sin happens when we are deceived. It's a process of deception that leads to a bad decision called sin. We're deceived from without. Our internal desires join with that deceit. Then there's a third aspect to this, and that is that when your internal desire to sin responds to an internal op- an external opportunity to sin, a destructive process begins. In verse 15, James tells us what happens when an external opportunity to sin resonates with an internal opportunity or an internal desire to sin within you. And let's look at verse 15 and see what the scripture says. James uses the analogy of a woman conceiving a child and giving birth. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin happens and it begins with temptation, but that's just the first part of a process. After the deception of temptation, both externally and internally happens, there's a chain reaction that follows. And like a woman who becomes pregnant, there are a series of steps that happen in the life cycle of sin. James says in chapter 1, verse 15, first of all, after desire has conceived. This is telling us the internal desire takes that opportunity. It follows up. It it acts on the external opportunity that is given to it. It says after it has conceived, then secondly, it gives birth to sin. This is when an act of sin happens outside of you. It's caused by you. It's your action. But now sin has moved from something that was within you, something that you were just thinking about, something that was making your heart race with the possibilities, something that was merely a desire within, has now manifested itself on the outside world, much as a baby that was once inside a woman's womb after it's born is now in part of the outside world. But then sin takes on a life of its own. And just like a baby grows up to be a man or a woman, So sin, once you act on the opportunity that temptation brings along, sin takes on a life of its own. And James tells us that what we give birth to when we sin is not a beautiful baby that becomes a wonderful son or daughter who becomes an adult and brings blessing to our life. No, when we sin, it gives birth to a monster. And he says at the end of verse 15, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The third part of the process of temptation is that there is a payoff to sin. And that payoff is not the pleasure 
that sin promises. We may receive some of that, but the part that we don't realize, the part that we don't think about, the part that often goes unmentioned, and certainly by the part of you that wants to deceive you and the opportunity without that wants to deceive you, the part that's unmentioned is that there will be consequences for the sins that you and I commit in the real world. Because sin is a departure from the will of God, because sin is a violation of God's commands, there will be consequences for it. And those consequences happen often on multiple levels. One of those consequences is that we'll get caught by someone that we're accountable to. Again, if you embezzle money from your employer, you might get away with it for a while, but almost certainly, eventually, someone's going to notice, and they're going to track it down, and there will be consequences if you're caught. And we could go on and talk about many other sins, but the truth of the matter is, we never think about the cost of sin. We rarely think about what might happen if we get caught. We often deceive ourselves into thinking, I can get by with this, or I can give a good excuse The Bible says when sin is full grown, it it brings destruction, it brings death. And ultimately then, even if someone gets away with some of their sins in this life, at the end of this life, we stand before a holy God, a holy God who is everywhere present in the fullness of his being and who sees your life from the moment of your conception until the day of your death. He watches everything you do and he keeps account of it all. And someday, each one of us stands before that holy God. And we give account for the lives that we've lived. And unless we've received the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Bible says there is death, there is eternity separated from God as the consequence for those who sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And another passage, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And so when we sin, it's because we've been deceived. We've been deceived by others. We've been deceived by ourselves. But even though we may sin in a moment of deception, once that sin has been committed, once the act has entered into the real world, it takes on a life of its own. And ultimately, the sin that we thought would bring us pleasure, the one that promised us so much, will eventually turn and destroy us. That's what happens when we give in to temptation. When temptation gives birth to sin, sin grows up and takes us out. There are consequences. Now, if this is true, then how do we avoid it, right? I mean, if if we're easily deceived because the promises out there are good and the desire within corresponds to them. And we are very easily deceived because we want to believe that the promises that temptations offer us are true. How do we avoid this? And the answer is given to us in the rest of the passage. As we go forward into verses 16 and 17, we're going to see the antidote to sin. We're going to see how we can stop sin in its tracks by avoiding the deception of temptation in the first place. And just to put it in one statement, I would say this. The scripture tells us that trusting God is essential to avoiding the deception of temptation. 
If temptation happens when we're deceived and we act on that deception and then it just runs away on its own, then the only way to stop it is to not be deceived. The only way to keep temptation from becoming sin and sin becoming death is to not give in when our desire is aroused and we are pulled like a fish toward the bait. And so James administers some preventative medicine to us in verses 16 and 17 of our passage. And he tells us the way to avoid the deception of sin is to trust God instead. Look with me at verse 16. Where the scripture says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And I told you in the last message, and I'm saying it again because it's important, that this is really the key command, the key statement in this entire paragraph about temptation. It's very easy to miss because it's a simple statement. But it's a very profound statement if we understand the power that temptation has to deceive us, the power that our sin nature has to deceive us. And the better promise that obedience to God's word offers us in the moments of temptation. James says, and he begins telling us the antidote to temptation by saying, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And of course, this phrase, my dear brothers and sisters, reminds us that what's being told us here is to Christians. That It's because of our relationship with God and because of the power that we have within by the Holy Spirit that we actually have the power to avoid the deception of sin. And so as James details for us how trusting God is essential to avoiding the deception in temptation, he tells us, first of all, that God commands us not to be deceived by temptation. This is where avoiding temptation begins. It begins when we see through the false promises that temptation offers us outside and the false promises that our internal desires tell us when we see those opportunities to sin. And when James tells us in verse 16 not to be deceived, there are a couple of things that we need to understand and prepare ourselves not to be deceived about. First of all, we need to be deceived, not deceived, that is, by the promises of sin. Now, I've alluded to this before already in this message, but I want us to get really clear about this. The reason why sin looks appealing to us is because it makes promises to us. It promises to us pleasure, or it promises to us a way out of our pain, or it promises to us something that seems to be missing from our lives. And it never gives any evidence to back up those promises. It says, trust me. Trust me. Believe me that you'll be better off if you commit this sin, if you disobey God in this way. You'll be better off than you will if you miss the opportunity. That's the lie that de- and the deception that sin tells us. And when God comes along in verse 16 and says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, He is telling us in his word not to buy into, not to believe the promises that temptation and sin make to us. Sin promises pleasure and usually delivers some level of pleasure. 
But I think you know in your own experience that the pleasure of sin is often less than what you expected it to be. And the consequences that indulging in sin brings into your life are far bigger and more unexpected than what you thought when you calculated the possibility of getting caught and the expected price tag that comes along. Sin promises pleasure and minimizes pain. But what we find out when we sin is that we get a minimal amount of pleasure and a whole lot of pain. So when God says in verse 16, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters, he says, don't be deceived by the promise of pleasure that sin offers. But there's a second thing that I think is going on when the scripture tells us don't be deceived in verse 16, and that's this, that we should not be deceived that we can, in the sense that we can get away with the consequences of sin. See, that's the other part of it. We are very good at rationalizing our own sins and our own disobedience. We're very good at saying, well, this is wrong, but I have a good excuse. Or because of my circumstances, it's understandable why I would do this. Or to go back to last week's message, yes, I sinned, but God put me in this situation. So we try to shift the blame. We try to make excuses for ourselves. We try to avoid the consequences of sin, sometimes by piling up other sins, like lying on top of the sins that we committed. And when the Bible says, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters, God's word is urging us. Don't believe the lies that sin promises in terms of pleasure, and don't believe it when your heart tells you, when your sin nature tells you, I can get away with this, or it'll be okay. If you're going to avoid the trap of Temptation. If you're going to avoid the monster of sin that temptation creates when you choose to disobey God's word, you need to believe God's word. Don't buy in to the deception that temptation and sin offer us. But I mentioned already that sin offers us a promise and does it without evidence. It doesn't prove to us that the promise is going to be true. We have to commit the sin before we find out whether or not it actually provides us with pleasure. The alternative to that is just simply to believe God. God's word is what tells us what is sinful and what isn't sinful. The commands of God's word that say, don't do this or do the other thing. Those are commands of God's word. And they they offer an alternative path to the decisions of sin. Instead of lying, God's word tells us to be truthful. Instead of committing adultery, God's word tells us to be faithful, and so on. We could go right down a list. God's word, God's commands offer us an alternative path. The question is, if you're not going to be deceived by the offer of temptation, if you're going to believe the command of God not to be deceived, then what evidence is there that God's path is the right way to go? How do I know that if I don't take the opportunity that sin offers me, that not only am I foregoing the pleasure, but that there will be some better result for me? That's what the rest of the passage tells us. And just to put a banner on it, to put a headline on it, I would put it this way. God reminds us that he, not sin, is the source of good things in life. The deception of sin is you'll be better off if you do this sin 
than if you don't do this sin. And God's word says just the opposite. You'll be better off if you say no to this sin and follow God's path obediently. What evidence is there? The Bible tells us, beginning in verse 17. Notice what the scripture says again. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And then the next verse tells us, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all that he created. These two verses, taken together, describe for us why God's way is the better path. Why we should see through the deceptions that sin offers us. The lies that sin tells us. And instead choose a path of obedience to the word of God. And James begins by talking about God as the creator. When we read the commands of God, God is making us a promise. He's telling us, if you obey my word, you'll be better off. But what evidence is there that we should obey the voice of God? The answer is that God has already blessed us. He's already been good to us in creation. Notice what uh, verse 17 says, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This reminds us that God is the creator. That he made the world that we live in. And that all of the good things in life that you already enjoy came as a result of his creative work. The loving relationship that you enjoy with your spouse happened because God created you to live in a relationship like that. The joy that you receive from having children and watching them grow, watching them play and enjoy this world, is a result of the gifting, the the beautiful gifting of our Creator. And when James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, he's telling us the things that really bring pleasure in this life came to us from the same God who gives us commands to avoid sin in this life. In other words, God has already provided us as creator with all the evidence we need to trust him in the moments of temptation. Because as creator, he's provided for us. And he's given us joy in the way that he created this world, fallen though it is. Every moment of true happiness and pleasure you have in this life comes as a gift from your creator God. And notice the next phrase in verse 17 says, it comes down from the father of lights. What does that mean? It reminds us that God is the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. Just as the sun comes up and warms the earth, And it does what it does to cause plants to grow that feed us. Just as the sun warms your face on a beautiful day, and makes you happy. And just as the beauty of a cloudless moon brings joy to your life at night, the Bible says every good thing comes from him, from the creator God. All the things that are truly joyful in life 
come from God. And the point is, they are expressions of the goodness of God. They are proof that God knows what he's doing, that he knows how to provide for human beings and to bring joy and pleasure into the lives of human beings if we simply trust him. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And the Bible says, with him there's no change like shifting shadows. Yes, the sun may go behind a cloud, but the goodness of God isn't fickle. It doesn't come and go. It sustains our every moment of life. And so the first reason why we should trust God in the moments of temptation is that God has already done so much for us to show us his goodness, to give us things that bring us joy and pleasure in this life. And so the decision to trust his commands, to believe his word in the moment of temptation is a decision based on the evidence that he has given us of his goodness. In the moment of temptation, when, t- when temptation lies to you and says, you'll be better off if you do this than if you don't, you can fall back on your experience with the creator God and know that because God has already done so much for us, that if we obey him in these moments of temptation, we can trust that good things will result in life. One way we know we should trust God in the moment of temptation is that we've already seen his goodness as the creator God. But another thing is mentioned to us in verse 18. Notice with me there what the scripture says. James 1.18 says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all that he Created. The second way we know that God is good and that God is trustworthy in the moments of temptation is through the new birth that he gave us through Jesus Christ. The scripture says he chose to give us birth, and we know that this is not physical birth, but spiritual birth, because it says, through the word of truth. That word of truth, of course, is a way of describing the gospel message. That although we as sinners deserve eternal punishment for our sins, God in the person of Jesus Christ came into this world and died on the cross for our sins. And when we look to him in faith and believe that he died for our sins, the Bible says God gives us new birth. He, he, we are reborn on the inside, spiritually speaking. And so it's not only the fact that God is a good creator that calls us to trust him in the moments of temptation and choose obedience over sin. But as Christians, we've experienced the goodness of God on a newer level, on a better level. We've experienced the forgiveness of sins. We've experienced the acceptance into the family of God. We've experienced the word of truth that gave us new birth. And because we have this new birth, we now have a new nature within that fights against the sin nature. We have the Holy Spirit within us that tells us, don't give in to the lies and deception of temptation. Why should you trust God in the moment of temptation when the choice is either obey God's word or disobey God's word? And everything is telling you that there's good things for you if you disobey God's word. Why you should trust God is because you know the goodness of God. You've seen it in creation and you've seen it in the new birth in this life. But notice the final phrase that we see in verse 18. It says, He chose us to give us birth through the word of truth, and that, the word that means that here's the result. 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. This is a promise of something better. Remember I said that sin promises things to us. It promises that there will be something good for us in disobedience, better than what God offers us through obedience. Well, this phrase that talks about how we are the first fruits of all that God created reminds us that there is a new age coming. That when this life is over, God is going to establish a kingdom on earth. And that kingdom on earth is going to be perfect. There will be no sin or sorrow or consequences there. And we will live in obedience to God's will, and it will be great. It will be better than anything this life can possibly afford for us. And when the Bible tells us that we can be a first fruits, what it's saying is, just like a farmer who plants his field and hopes that the, there isn't a drought or a crop failure of some kind and rejoices when he starts to see those plants come through the ground and when they finally bring forth the first vegetables. Those are the first fruits. They are the evidence that there is a much greater crop coming. And the Bible says that your spiritual life, if you're a Christian, the relationship that you have with God now, the forgiveness of sins that you have, the relief from guilt, the power to to, uh, say no to temptation, the fellowship that you have with Christ and the joy that he brings your life, all of these things are just a taste of what is to come for us in the kingdom of God. And so in the moment of temptation, When temptation is calling to us and when it's lying to us and telling us disobedience is going to be better than obedience, there is more pleasure here in sin than there is in obedience to God. The Bible says the way out of that situation is to cling to the the commands of God and the promises that are there. In other words, it's to trust the person of God, the same God who created you, the same God who saved you, the same God who promises an eternity with you is saying, trust me now, you'll be better off if you do. This is the prescription for defeating temptation in your life as a Christian. It is to trust God in the moments when the world is lying to you, when your own sinful nature is lying to you, when everything is calling to you, you have to cling to the goodness of God and trust him in the moments of temptation. And so the final idea and the the, the big idea for today's message is simply this. Trust God in temptation as an intentional act of faith. If in the moment of temptation you can believe God and, and say to yourself, and I've done this, say to yourself, as much as I want to commit this sin, I know that God's will will be better for me that will give you power to say no to the lies and deceit that temptation brings into your life. But you have to come to the place in your life where you're willing to trust God and believe his word and do what he says, even when everything around you is telling you you'll be better off in sin. It's the goodness of God that leads us to successfully avoid temptation. We have to trust God in those moments. Now, let me add this, because 
we're all sinners and we all sin in many ways. And maybe you're caught in a sin right now and you don't know what to do. My answer is the same. Trust God. God's prescription for us when we're caught in sin is repentance. It's to come clean to God and others about what we've done, to seek his forgiveness, and to get back on the path of righteousness. That's an act of faith too. We have to trust God in the moments of temptation to avoid temptation. We have to trust him when we sin to do what is right and get back on the path of obedience to him. And so if you're a Christian this morning, the opportunity for you and the, um, the message for you is to fortify yourself against the power of deception by trusting God and believing God before and during the moments when temptation comes to try to deceive you. This is an intentional act of faith.